Pulse Audio Podcast Network. it is i don't even know where i am right now but i know two things kelly my amazing co-host just had her birthday and this is whining about history the women's history podcast where two longtime besties with breasties whine about women from history that you probably haven't heard of but deaf should have i'm emily i'm kelly and she's the birthday girl yeah yeah Yeah, kelly just celebrated her birthday so now we're the same age again so she doesn't get to call me old not that you did. I mean, I'm old. So. Yeah. <laughs> now we can be old together. This is what growing old together looks like. <laughs> Having a podcast, sipping on hot chocolate on a Thursday afternoon because you're trying to trick your body into thinking you're drinking caffeine so you'll wake up while still maintaining, you know, the ability to sleep because daylight savings is the fucking worst. I prefer the spring forward timeline. But I want it to be permanent. Like, I don't want to fall back and spring forward. I just want to stay here and never change. Like, I'm over it. I'm done. Yeah, right. Can I I just protest? Like, no, no, no. I'm sticking to my own time schedule now. And it is always spring forward. And you fall back, people can suck it. I will stay with you. I appreciate it. So uh, we are still celebrating Women's History Month. And this has been, it's been kind of a weird month. It's been like full of a lot of change. It's been crazy busy. And we're like ahead in the recording, but also behind at the same time. Cause we were, we were ahead, we're ahead in recording, but we're behind in releasing. Mm-hmm. So that's been a weird thing. So again, I don't know what day it is or what time it is, but what I do know is that because it's women's history month, we are still celebrating with our giveaway. Seriously, check out our social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and enter the giveaway. You just have to do four things like whatever social media page it is, like the post, leave the name of your favorite gal that we've covered in the comments. So, yes, you actually have to at least have listened or do some very basic reading of our episode descriptions. I'm going to be a little concerned if someone's like, oh, I love the Angels of Nagari. Those babes were getting it done. <laughs> uh, and then tag another history lover. And that one's optional. It's just like, you know, if someone picks the angels of Nagari, we'll just be like, honey, are you okay? (laughs) You, you obviously need to talk. Um, this is a safe place, but please don't hurt anyone. And because it is our three year anniversary, we are giving away three separate gifts. We're giving away a, they said a bad word. They said a bad word. Coffee mug, a linguistic butchery, cotton drawstring bag, and a set of Herstory seal of approval buttons. So it's like just little buttons and you get five of them. Yeah, they're super cute. So yeah, enter that shit now. Also, you get an entry for every social media platform. So you can enter up to three times. Get your history swag on. Get it, get it. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. That's funny. Also, I did just want to take a moment because we are also posting some prompts to our social media, like women's history centric prompts. And I just want to read some of the answers that we've gotten. Yes, of course. Because I think it's really sweet. So. One of our prompts was what historical woman inspires you and why? And let me open the comments. So uh, one of our one of our longtime listeners, Tess, said Virginia Woolf. And she's actually talked about Virginia Woolf on her social media platform before because Virginia Woolf is in she's well represented as a writer, but not as a queer figure because she was bi. And there's even uh, like a lot some of her writing even alludes to. Not that she was trans, but relates to that journey. Like you can, it's, it's relatable, which I think is really sweet. Uh, historically woman said my hero, Mary MacArthur, helping working class women improve their lives. And we haven't covered her. Mary MacArthur. So I think we need to add her to the list. Yeah, for sure. Civics and coffee, which is another amazing history podcast. If you want to check that out. I love me some Frida Kahlo overcoming chaos and adversary to make beautiful art, which I'm like, I love the idea of overcoming chaos, but to be 
super powerful. You need to become the chaos. You need to be the chaos. It's like the storm growled and you whispered back, bitch, I am the storm. (laughs) Um, NZ Waffles actually said Isabella and Andrini, Andrini, Andrini. I it's I think it's Italian. I can't speak. One of the first improvisers, and they actually like offered to come on the podcast and talk about her. And we're still trying to figure that out. But like, we saw your message. We're working on it. This whole month has just been an absolute like. I feel like I haven't sat down in yeah. weeks. I feel like I haven't actually stopped in weeks. But yeah, we're going to be posting more prompts. So follow us on all of our social media and you might be able to hear your response on the podcast. What? what? So, Kelly, yes. we're not drinking wine. No. We're drinking, I'm drinking hot chocolate. And Kelly is on her water. second glass of water because I knocked the first one literally everywhere all over the studio. It was a disaster. Uh... But yeah, it's, it's, we're not, we're not drinking wine right now. It's not a good idea because we're both very tired. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a week. It has been a week for sure. And it's not over yet. Nope, it's not. (laughs) So Kelly, I do believe you are going first. Yeah. Give me two seconds. I'm super excited. I'm like, I'm feeling a little low energy, but I'm also feeling like comfortable. Like, yeah, yeah, just getting together with a good friend to talk about women from history over a warm drink. And I'm just going to like settle into my chair and try not to knock over any more beverages. Yeah, I appreciate that. No kidding. Are you ready? I am very ready. Okay. So I'm covering Belva and Lockwood. Belva Ann Lockwood. Is Ann the middle name or is it like Belva Ann? I think it's a middle name. Okay. I'm still going to call her Belva Ann. B-A. Belva Ann. Badass. (laughs) All right. It stands for bet your ass. (laughs) (laughs) Bet your ass on Belva Ann. There you go. (laughs) B-A-B-A. B-A-B-A. So Belva Ann was born in... Royalton, New York. Ooh. That sounds fancy, doesn't it? I kind of hope Royalton is actually the most, like, shitty, shitty rural piece of shit town ever. We're not, if you live in Royalton or near Royalton, we're not actually hoping you, like, live in squalor. No, no, I'm just saying a town named Royalton being just absolute trash would be be amazing. Like, there's one outhouse for the ten people that live there and they all share. It's... It's 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 like an inside joke that the entire town of 10 people has together. Right. So her father was Lewis Johnson, a, um, a farmer, and his wife was Hannah Green. I think it was kind of she was a housewife, helped on the farm, kind of, you know, traditional. Yeah, rural, rural you life. Know, this is late 1800s. What are you? So what do you do? Oh, you know, just rural wife stuff. Yeah, why rural not? wife stuff. Rural wife. Say yeah. that ten times fast. It's like a rural jar. Rural, rural. Yeah, she was born in eighteen thirty, so we're in that time frame. Eighteen thirty. Okay. Um, for most of her like childhood, she actually grew up in her aunt's house. Um, which is 5070 Griswold Street and apparently still stands today and has one of those like little plaques that Aww. says like, she lived here. Who, I you love know. that. Yeah. So that's really cute. By 14, she was teaching at the local elementary school because. Oh my, because children are not children. children. Like, yeah, you're not allowed to be a child back then. You're a baby and then you're a working ass adult by five. Right. Um, in. Uh, by the time she was 18, she was married to Uriah McNall, who was also a farmer. So that's a name know. we got to bring back. Uriah. Uriah. <laughs> that's a powerful name. Also sounds a little like Urethra. Sorry, not Urethra. 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 Uh, my R's. I'm, I'm struggling with my R's today. <laughs> so um, she wasn't married for super long, like five years before he died of tuberculosis oh shit yeah um, they had a three-year-old daughter at the time that he died oh. so it was her and her daughter named laura 
or Lura. Wilder. Might have been Lura. Don't know. L U R A. Could have been Lura. Lura, Lura the rural juror. <laughs> a rural life stuff. <laughs> Lura, goddammit. You're done. This is so disrespectful. Why is it that when I'm not drinking, I'm the most obnoxious during our episodes? <laughs> right. So, um,. Belva actually got like a really good opportunity and was able to go back to school even after her husband died. Oh, wow. Um, and she graduated with honors in 1857 and would go on to become the headmistress of the Lockport Union School. Dun, dun, so that's exciting. Dun. It was, it was, you know, considered a respectable position, um, but she found that whether she was teaching or working as an administrator, she was only paid half of what her male co- counterparts were making, and that did not make her very happy. That would also piss me off. That would also rub me in the incorrect fashion. <laughs> right. She would continue teaching um, and working as a principal at several schools, kind of just like moving around different places with her mm-hmm. daughter. Um, but primarily staying in Lockport, but like working at the school, different schools in the area. And so, and then in 1861, she became principal of the Gainesville Female Seminary. So then she moved. Is that Florida? Could be New York. I'm sure there's more than one Gainesville. I, I was going to say, I always think of the Gainesville Ripper from Florida. <laughs> All of my geographic knowledge is related to places I've been or murder, sometimes both. Right. <laughs> Um, and then she moved on to teach at the Owega Female Seminary, where she would continue to be principal for quite a while, um, until she decided to change her career, which we'll be talking about. Um, and she noticed later in life that her, um, educational philosophy had slowly been changing over the years after she met. Susan B. Anthony. Oh, oh, that Susan B. Anthony. Yeah, so no she, big like, deal. She was becoming more like progressive and stuff. Yeah. More like, hey, why are the men getting paid more than me? That's kind of bullshit. And Susan B. Anthony's like, you're absolutely right. That is bullshit. And she's like, oh my God, it is. Right. Yeah. Belva agreed with many of Susan's ideas about social society's restrictions on women, including the concern about limited education for girls. Because um, during this time, the teaching that was available to girls um, was mainly to prepare students for like a domestic life, you know, potentially working as teachers, but mainly just being a domestic wife. Yeah. You're, you're either going to be a domestic wife or you're going to be working in someone's house as a domestic servant. Either way, you're going to be scrubbing some floors, girl. Right. And um, Belva had gone and seen Susan speak about how young women ought to ha- be given more options, including, you know, preparation for other careers, like things in business that would pay better. <laughs> you know, things that don't involve cleaning up after every other human being on the planet. Right. And, and so popping out children. Yeah. And so Belva was like pushing her schools toward that. Like, we're going to teach our girls more. Yep. Um, she she expanded the curriculum at several of the schools she worked at and added courses typical to only young men, such as public speaking, botany, and gymnastics. Oh, my God. Um, eventually, Belva, like, as she kind of got the... She, she gradually decided she wanted to study law <gasps> instead of continue teaching because she wanted to make a bigger difference. Um, and so she left to... Um, you know, get her law. Pursue that. She moved she, to Washington D.C. with her daughter. She's going to become a rural juror. No jurors don't have to actually. It's going to be rural. They she's going to be Washington a D.C. city lawyer. Yeah. So in February 1866, Belva and her daughter Lura or Laura. Lura. I like Lura. Lura. Um, like like I said, they moved to Washington D.C. because she believed that was the center of power in the United States. I mean, it is the capital. I was so. going to say that's not wrong. Um, but she thought it would be the best place to get good opportunities to, you know, advance a legal profession kind of a thing. Yeah. Well, and you know, when you get to a big city, there's more opportunity. Things tend to be a little more open, you know, so she has more, she has more mobility than she does, you know, back in her rural, 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 um, So not only was she going to study law, she actually opened a co-ed private school in Washington, D.C. while she was studying law. Oh, my God. And this was huge. This was the mid-1860s, and co-ed 
teaching is incredibly unusual. Mm -hmm. Most schools were still separated by gender at that point. Okay, so that's really amazing. And obviously it was unusual for the time, but I feel like we're glossing over the fact that she's going to law school and she's like, oh, but you know what? On the side, I'm going to open up a school and run it. Like, I know this was the 1800s and they didn't have as many laws on the books, but come on, that's redonkulous. Right, yeah, I'll I'll get into her education in a little bit. So in uh, 1868, two years after coming to New York, she remarried. This time to an older man, because mm. why not? His name was Reverend Ezekiel Lockwood, so this is where her... She knew he had staying power. She's like, oh, if you live to be this old, you've seen some shit, and you're probably not going to die that easily like my first husband. Right, Let's exactly. do this. <laughs> he was... So he also, she also knew he had staying power because he was a Civil War veteran. Oh, shit. In addition to that, he was also a Baptist minister and a practicing dentist. The, the trifecta, yeah, apparently. <laughs> the golden trifecta. <laughs> um, they would go on to have a daughter together who would sadly die before her second birthday. Oh, the great thing is, though, not only did her husband have progressive ideas about women's roles, he helped raise um, Laura from the, her first marriage. That's so sweet. And he fully supported his wife's desire to to um, study the legal profession and encouraged her to pursue any subjects that interested her. At a boy. Good for him. I feel like if he wasn't like that, she probably wouldn't have married him. I, you know, you, you'd hope but so. But still, it's good to hear. Yeah. Because sometimes, and I'm not saying anything against the Baptist faith, but especially back then you hear like minister and people are like, mm. Yeah, but it's kind of like um, Ruth Temple, who I covered a couple weeks ago. <laughs> her father was a minister and he was incredibly progressive and he was very like civic minded. <laughs> So as she started studying law, Belva quickly realized that she would need, you know, her basic education that she had would not, you know, get her as far as she needed to go. So she would attend the Janice Wesselin Seminary School to prepare for study at college. So this wasn't the college. This was like preparing herself to go to college. It was like pre-college, post-secondary. Right. Or whatever they call it. When you're like in high school, but you're taking the college classes. So her plan, which she explained later in a monthly magazine, like after she had finished everything, was was not well received by many of her friends and colleagues because it was very unusual for women to seek higher education. So it was kind of frowned upon. And it was especially unusual for like a widow to do so. Because when she originally was applying, she was still a widow. So, you know, they were like, "Mm." I mean, honestly, if anything, you think a widow would have more motivation to socially advance because she doesn't have a husband. Yeah, but you're supposed to take care of your kids. Well, she is. Nonetheless, she was not, you know, persuaded by friends and family. She's like, no, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. Um, So she persuaded the Janice College in Lima, New York to admit her. So they were like, let's do this. Love it. Um, and so then she started kind of getting into the law stuff, but, um, that college she was at didn't have a law department. Oh. So she was like, hmm. Uh, she found a local law professor that was offering private classes and she became one of his first students. Oh, wow. He was willing to teach her and, you know, that like dipping her toe in that very much made her like, was like, yes, this is definitely what I want to do. And so she would go on to Syracuse University getting a Master of Arts in 1871. I have to say, I love how many men in this story are like really stepping up and being awesome. Because obviously, not every guy in the past had their head up their ass. Right. But as far as like what was the societal norm and what was socially acceptable. It wouldn't be surprising. It would be incredibly typical for a man to be like, I'm not going to teach you. That's not a girl thing. And so I love that her husband's supporting her. She's finding this professor who's like, yeah, let's do this. Right. Like they definitely deserve some shouts. Yeah. Shout outs. She definitely did face some discrimination because of her gender. She would later tell people that at the same time she was going to Syracuse University, she did apply to go to Columbia Law. Oh, um, and the board of trustees refused to admit her, fearing she would distract male students. Can I just say she walked so Elle Woods could run? 
Right. <laughs> um, so then after Syracuse, she would go on to like pursue her actual like law degree um, at the National University School of Law, which is now the George Washington University School of Law. So that's a bigger name out there. Yeah. Um, and she would complete her coursework in 1873, but the, the school refused refused her and some other women their diploma because of their gender. We've seen this before. Yeah, which always blows my mind. I'm like, you admitted them, and it it's it's like you realize they never expected them to last. Oh, yeah. They never thought it would even get to the point where they had to give them a diploma. And at the very last minute, they're like, JK, you don't get one. Right. Which I'm like, are you, give me my money back. Fuck so, you. Without a diploma, obviously, she wasn't allowed to take the bar. She wasn't even allowed to, like, enter to take the bar. Good God. Um. And after a year of runaround, she finally wrote to the president, who at the time was Ulysses S. Grant. Oh, snap. Um, and he appealed to him as president ex officio, which in office, um, like to make them give her the degree. Like, she's like, I did everything. I love that she's like, I'm literally going to tell the president on you. Right. She <laughs> asked him for justice, stating that she had passed all of her courses and deserved her diploma. Within a week of sending the letter, she received her Bachelor of Laws. She was 43 <gasps> years old at the time. Oh, my God. Can you imagine writing the president saying, hey, this this Institute of Higher Education is fucking me over, and then it actually working? Like, how many like letters? It makes me wonder, like, did it actually get to the president, or did somebody else just read it and deal with it? I feel like, so nowadays, it would not get to the president. Full stop, period. Right. What would happen is uh, the story would become viral on social media where it's like, oh, a woman graduates and is refused diploma. But yeah, that that just totally blows my mind. I'm really, I'm imagining Ulysses Yes Grant, who, you know, like he was in the Civil War. He's seen some shit. He's reading this. He's like, okay, so she passed her classes. They enrolled her. She graduated. And they just won't give her the degree. The fuck? <laughs> Right. Him just like scratching his head. Like, I literally don't understand this. This is the dumbest shit. Like, I fought a war. Our country was at war. And now you're bringing this shit to me? Grow up. (laughs) Right. So she would get admitted by the bar um, in the District of Columbia, although she had several judges tell her that they had absolutely no confidence in her as a lawyer. And that is a reaction she would have to repeatedly overcome, which is stupid. Which is still a thing. You have to establish you have to earn the respect as a professional and like as someone who knows what you're doing um so this this is the best and worst part of the story because it just makes me so mad so she would she would go on to try to gain admission to the maryland bar as well Mm -hmm. you know that way she can do stuff in other other than just the tiny, tiny area of District of Columbia. Yeah. Um, the tiny, tiny, minuscule area. is actually really small. I know. But there's so many people there. Well, yeah, it's because it's basically just Washington, D.C. Yeah. Um, so when she tried to get admission to that bar, a judge lectured her, told her that God himself had determined that women were not equal to men and never would be. She tried to defend herself, um, but he said she had no right to speak in his courtroom and had her removed. You know, I wish I could be, I wish I could be surprised because I'm hearing this and I'm just like, yep. Yeah. 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 Like th- this, this seems pretty standard. Like we've been doing this podcast long enough where I'm just like, yeah, yeah, no, of course, of course someone said that to her in the 1800s. Right. People, would- judges say awful things in the year of our goddess 2022 right now. And they, you know, don't want to disrupt a rapist's life, you right. know, for one little mistake. Like, yeah, she so. so she had also applied and got denied by the Court of Claims to represent veterans and their families. She actually also applied to the United States Supreme Court after having met all of their minimum requirements securing uh, a sponsor, Elbert Riddle, so a guy, and she still got denied on gender grounds. I, so I'm she, just, I'm like exhausted. I know. Like, and, and that sounds so privileged to say, but just like hearing this stuff, sometimes I'm just like, God damn it. Um, so she struggled a lot against social and the limited legal standing, which was still accorded to women at the time. 
Because under English common law, which we still were at the time, um, Belva was considered a femme, a femme covert, which is basically a medieval thing, but it is technically a medieval le- legal term, but it's basically married woman. She's a married woman. And back then, as a married woman, her status under the law differed from that of an unmarried woman as a wife was still considered subordinate to her husband. Yeah. Remember remember when like you could be owned as property by getting married and yeah. how we still struggle with some of those basic concepts today? Yeah. But as we like to say, nevertheless, she persisted. <laughs> And Belva made her own practice slowly, case by case. She won. She, I mean, she lost some too. Like everyone does. It happens. But it happens to the best of us. The more she was in court, even the detractors had to acknowledge her competence. She became known as an advocate for women's issues in particular, um, and would actually go to speak on a bill for equal pay for federal government employees. Love it. Right. Loving it. She was also active in several women's suffrage organizations, obviously, and testified before Congress in support of the legislation to give married women and widows more legal protection. Love that. Right. I hate that this is a thing, though, that we actually had to have a discussion about and be like, hey. Right. So in 1877, sadly, her husband died, um, which was very sad, but she kept going. She was like, I got this. She's the one with the staying power. Right. Well, he was older than her, yeah. too. Um, so Belva drafted an anti-discrimination bill to have the same access to the bar as male colleagues, and she lobbied Congress for five years to get it to pass. Oh, my God. Yeah. In 1879, Congress finally passed the law, and President Ruther- Rutherford B. Hayes signed it into a full law because you know he needs to do that (laughs) um so yeah it allowed all qualified women attorneys to practice in any federal court um belva was then sworn in as the first woman member of the u.s supreme court bar in march on march 3rd of 1879 that's amazing um Late in 1880, belva would become the first white female lawyer to argue a case before the supreme court um, arguing the case Kaiser v. Stickney, and then later the United States versus the Cherokee Nation. Oh, my God. That one had to be intense. Yeah. So, we have previously talked about Victoria Woodhall and her run for president. Yes. Um, Belva and- also ran for president. And oh, s- shut up! And some consider her the first woman to one- run for president, but I have in my notes. Or second, depending on your opinion of what... Victoria Woodhull did. I yeah, I was going to say, because what was it? Like Shirley Chisholm was the- A little bit later. Fir- well, she was the first woman of color mm-hmm. to- Run for president. Run for president. Hillary Clinton was the first woman to get a major party nomination. nomination yep. um, yeah, Victoria Woodhull had a com- campaign, but she declared, was it Frederick Douglass- yeah. As her running mate. And he was like, and he uh, was like who are you? Like, she didn't, she just said, like, he's my running mate. And he's like, who, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. Like, re- it, respect like, to Victoria. She didn't actually, like, super campaign. She was just kind of like, hey, I'm doing this. Yeah, yeah. Like, we we covered her in uh, her sister, Tennessee, in our in an, a previous episode. Mm-hmm. And I always heard of her as, like, the oh, the first woman to run for president. But it was kind of like. Not really. It was a little of- half-assed. I'm going to be super honest. It felt like really half-assed, but she was nothing if not a promoter. And she was very much into like self-branding mm-hmm. and like kind of building her yeah, legend. She was super cool. So. Okay. But Belva wasn't half-assed about this. She, yes. She went all guns ablaze. She was full ass. So she ran as a candidate for the National Equal Rights Party. And she ran in two different elections in 1884 and 1888. Her first running mate was uh, Mariette Stowe. Oh, I've heard of her. She's a feminist. Yes. Like, that's all I know, I know but I just know, I, I know we've, like, talked about her or touched on her. Um, And then in 1888, she originally ran with Alfred Love, except they somehow didn't tell him he was going to be nominated. Okay. So then when he found out, he was, like, um, he was the president of the Universal Peace Union, 
and he was a world peace activist. So he was like, uh, no, I don't want, like, I don't want to be a vice president to the president, you know, because. What is this weird pattern of women running for president and then their male running mate is like, what? Yeah. (laughs) They're not informed. I I know know. you can't just text someone. I know. But come on. Like, there needs to be some basic communication. Right. So she had to scramble a little bit and eventually picked Charles Stewart Weld, who was the son of some progressives. Cool. Um. So obviously representing a third party without a broad base of support didn't really give Belva a strong place to stand from or a strong chance of winning the presidency, but it did get, you know, the her, her word more out there. She It gave her a platform. Exactly. She sent a letter to Linda Slaughter. That. Which is a great name. Is an amazing name. Right. So that she was her friend. And she provided some insights into the campaign in the letter she wrote, quote, I intend, if possible, to get up on the electoral ticket for each state and thus get up a grand agitation on the women, the woman question. (laughs) The woman woman question question being, Um, do women count as people? (laughs) Right. She's like, but I am not so anxious about the number of votes polled. So basically, like, I want to get up there. I want people to see that a woman is running, but I'm. Like, I know what I'm not, like, I know I'm not going to get it. Well, and I think that does take a lot of, like, chutzpah. Knowing, like, this, I'm not going to win. I know I'm not, but this kind of thing needs to start happening now so that someone in the future is going to start off at, like, from a higher stance than I am right now. And at least I can bring attention to my message. So hopefully this whole situation starts to get better where a woman running for president isn't that big of a fucking deal. Honey, I'm so sorry. It's 2022 and it's still a big fucking deal. Um, so it sounds like she did get about 4,100 votes. Wow. Total. It's more votes than I ever got for president. But you also have to think about women couldn't vote. At this time? Oh, you're right. So it's more voice, votes than like anyone thought she would get. So that's over 4,000 men are like, mm-hmm. this gal. She's um, my gal. So it was funny, though, because in 1884, there was an article written that referred to her as Old Lady Lockwood and warned male readers of the dangers of petticoat rule, which just made me laugh. I love that. I just, yeah, this whole petticoat rule. We, we've talked about like... um was it like a petticoat government? Right. When I was talking about like women in the West. Yeah. Yeah. So they did think that um, Belva felt that she had gotten more votes and actually petitioned the United States Congress to, for a re a recount of mainly just her votes because she told newspapers and magazines that she had evidence of voter fraud. She said that her supporters had seen um, ballots ripped that had like her name checked, um, particularly in Oregon and Pennsylvania. Did you say Oregon? Oregon. O- Oregon. 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 Whatever. You know, everyone everyone who lives in Oregon should be a mandatory Oregon donor. Mm. I'm just saying, you don't get to name your your state Oregon and not right. be chill with Oregon's. Um, and she said that a large vote in Pennsylvania were never counted and simply dumped in the wastebasket. Dude, Pennsylvania has been causing trouble since day one, haven't right. they? Um, I don't think anything came of it. I couldn't find anything yeah. about it. So in her later years, Belva was became a well-respected writer who frequently wrote essays about women's suffrage, shocker, and the need for legal equality for women. Among the publications in which she appeared, um, she wrote for Cosmopolitan, which was a journal of current issues at the time. Oh my god. She wrote so, so her article was not right between like a yeah. what does your sign say about your sexual style and like how to please the him. best way to S a D based on your astrological sign and your time of the month. Yeah. <laughs> so she also wrote to Harper's Weekly and Lippincott's, which are also like bigger magazines. Yep. Um so in addition to being active in the the National Women's Suffrage and Equal Rights Parties, um, she would also participate in the National Women's Press Association and help organize women journalists that would al- that also act, you know, activated for equal rights. 
Um, she continued practicing law until about the mid 1880s. Um, and I will say this about her law career. She never took, um, or she did not refuse civil or civil or criminal trial work. Like she would take whatever basically. Mm -hmm. And she did have a few set like dramatic cases, but I'm not really going to go into it. Um, but either because she wasn't making enough money or because she was taking such long trips to lecture, um, she ended up you know, kind of just easing herself out of the courtroom circuit, though she would yep. still take trials here and there. It just wasn't her, like, primary main focus. thing. Yeah. Yeah. She was diversifying her her activities portfolio. Right. And her and her daughter were working on, um, instead of trial work, they did a lot of, like, pension claims and bounty claims for businesses. So, like, they were still doing law work, just not necessarily in the courtroom. Um. Yeah, she did 7,000 pension claims between the 70s and 90s. And that's apparently a really respectable number for considering it was just like her and her daughter. Wow. So, yeah. When you said 70s and 90s for a hot second, I was like, did she die in the 1990s? No. <laughs> Is that what's no, happening? In the 1800s. She really has the staying power. <laughs> right. Um, so in her late 70s and early 80s, um, Belvo balanced a career in law with, like I said, the lecture circuit and growing responsibilities of the mem- as a member of the uni- Universal Peace Union, which she had joined, which was, as I mentioned, a small pacifist organization. Yep. Um, so that's what she was doing. And then in 1906, um, she got chosen to represent the Eastern Cherokee Nation as I mentioned, in their appeal before the U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, hot damn. Um, This time, unlike her other, because remember I mentioned she had previously done, and she had lost her first one. Yeah. But this one, she made a very successful argument, and her clients actually shared in a multi-million dollar settlement. Oh, my God. Okay, so she went up against the U.S. government on behalf of the Cherokee Nation. and, And won. And the government was not like... We continue to go fuck yourselves. Right. As women holy and sh- as the Cherokee Nation. Yeah. Holy shit. Do you yeah. know how hard that must have been? Well, and she was old. Yeah. Like, there's no nice way to, like, she was old. Yeah. Well, you know what? So it was Notorious RBG. Right. In 1912, she took her last important, like, significant, significant case. case um, and she successfully represented Mrs. Mary Gage in her lunacy proceedings before a jury. Um, it came about because um, Mary Gage had threatened to kill a prominent Washington ba- banker. Oh, I thought you were going to say baker, not banker. So, yeah, she was known as a woman of great energy to the point where at the age of 83, Belva led a group of women on a tour of Europe. She was like, we're going to get this done. Belva, honey. And until her, until she got ill in her later years, she was marching on the streets of the Capitol in support of women's suffrage every time she could and international peace. She would die in Washington, D.C. in 1917 at the age of 86 years old. That's so close to the 19th Amendment. Right. That's so close. It's interesting because three years before she died, she told a reporter that women might one day occupy the White House. She said, quote, it will be entirely on her own merits, however. No movement can place her there simply because she is a woman. End quote. Exactly. So yeah, she had a 43-year career as a lawyer and is buried in the Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C. I I I just want to like double back to that quote really quick. Mm-hmm. Like if a woman does occupy the White House, it's or not, I should say it's when. It's not going to be because she's a Democrat or a Republican and it's those parties be, lifted her. It's going to be because or she Or because she's a woman, period. And we, we see this because we see this like with affirmative action. It's like, oh, well, you know, identity politics. And you're just, you're just voting for them because they're a woman or because they're black or something like that. And it's like, actually, do you understand how many barriers are put in front of someone because of those things? And how often we've covered women who have to be like 10 times better than their peers just to get some recognition. Like they have to rise above and beyond because they can't just be competent. They have to be the absolute fucking best. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and we still see that. 
We still see that oh, all yeah. the time. All the time. Um, so Legacy, there are several communities named Bellwood, Belva or Lockwood named after her, as well as there was um uh, like a period where when she was gaining renown, a lot of daughters were named after her. I was going to say Belva is a name that we need to bring back because yeah. Belle is really pretty. And Belva has this like extra little sass. Right. Exactly. It's like she, Belle with a twist. There, there were at least three ship figureheads carved in her likeness. Love it. The ships were the Martha, the Julia Lawrence and an unnamed ship. But the unnamed ship had like a full length masthead. It wasn't just like her face, which is it, super cool. It was though. a ship that didn't need a name. Um, one of the figureheads is displayed in the uh, the museum at Mystic Seaport in Mystic, Connecticut. If you live anywhere near there, please go and take a picture of this. Yeah, please send that to us. And it has a quote, quote, with raised chin, she gazes straight ahead as if her attention were fixed on the distant horizon. Oh, you know what that makes me think of? So I I love Hamilton, but I have yet to watch it because Same. I just haven't had the opportunity. Like you and I need to like watch it together and live tweet it or something or, or like do reactions for our patrons. But there is a scene at the end where... Um, Elizabeth Schuyler is singing and she like looks up off into the distance and every person who plays her has kind of a different reaction because yeah. it's up to them to determine what they're looking at and what that moment means to their particular Elizabeth Schuyler. And that's what that reminds me of. She's like looking up in the distance and she's just like seeing all this like amazing stuff ahead of her and like, yeah, I, I helped with that. Like, she was a part of that. Right? Isn't that amazing, though? I love that. Um, So she also has, uh, she had a merchant ship in World War II named after her, which was the USS Belva Lockwood. Love it. Uh, the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. has a portrait of her, which is great. Yeah. Um, and then... She was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 18 or 1983, and her the statement about it says, quote, Using her knowledge of the law, she worked to secure women's suffrage, property law reforms, equal pay for equal work, and world peace. Thriving on publicity and partnership and encouraging other women to pursue legal careers, Lockwood helped to open the legal profession to women. You know, that actually makes me think a lot of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because even before she was on the Supreme Court, she was taking these cases very strategically that kind of pointed out the hypocrisy in, of, of like sexist laws. So she would be like, hey, here's how this is affecting a man. See how this is bullshit? Right. Like, you know, kind of flipping the script on it because otherwise people were seeing it as just like a bunch of women complaining. It's like, no, no. See how this also affects you right. and how this is really, really stupid. Right, exactly. And seriously, like, Belva Ann Lockwood, man, she walked so Elle Woods could run, so RBG could dominate. Dominate. Uh, for our history stamp collector, she also had a stamp way back in 1986. Damn straight she does. Um, when stamps were only 17 cents. But she got one from uh, the series she was in was called the Great Americans series. So that's pretty cool. I, you know, I think it's interesting that she's been recognized in all of these ways and even had a, a ship in World War II named after her. And then like, like, like she's in heads on other ships. You never hear about yeah, that. But she's like enough of an enduring figure to still be recognizable in World War II, but we've never heard of her. Right. Cause I, I, you would think by World War II, she would have been, you know, kind of forgotten. But I love that she was still worth mentioning, you know, or on people's minds. Right. Isn't that amazing? That's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that, Kelly. You're welcome. Who are my, you covering? So my gal is a little more fighty, like in the traditional sense, not like within the law, you know, more like, fuck you, I do what I want, like Batman style. Hmm. So I am covering Countess Ilona Zereni. And there's a lot of like Hungarian and Croatian and like this linguistic butchery abounds. This is going to be rough. So just strap and strap on and bear with me. So Elena Zarini was born in modern day 
Ozalj, Croatia, as Jelena Zarinska, which is the Croatian version of her name, but she's more okay. commonly known as Ilona Zareni. I like that name too, though. Ilona. Ilona. Yeah, I do it. I like it too. Ilona. It kind of reminds me, I have a friend uh, named Paula. What's up, Paula? And one time I, I was working with an art class that she was in and she jokingly introduced herself instead of Paula as Paula. Because everyone in the class, including the professor, already knew her. So it was kind of like making fun of the whole introduction thing. And the professor goes, oh, my God, I've been saying your name wrong all this time. I'm so like he didn't get she was joking. So now every time I see her, I'm like, Paula, Paula, (laughs) what's up, Paula, Ilona. Um, So she was the oldest of four children to Petar Zarinsky, a Bon or Viceroy, and Katerina Zarinska, a poet. And the name, the last name changes from like Zarinsky to Zarinska in all these resources. So I'm not sure if they're gendered because, you know, Petar Zarinsky, Katerina Zarinska, but then like the family line is Zarinska or Zarinsky. So I might switch back and forth. I'm really sorry. So the Zarinska family had once been incredibly powerful, but Elona and her siblings would be the last generation of this like super, super powerful family. Though the sun was setting on the Zarinska family, Elona still came from a privileged group and was afforded a super great education. Her uncle, Nikola... The seventh Zarinsky, a notable poet, military leader, and statesman, so kind of like a BFD, even contributed to her education. So, like, you got this super worldly educated dude in your family who's just, like, now your private tutor also. It also helped that she was described as quite the beauty, and she married Hungarian aristocrat Francis Rakautsi on March 1st of 1666. Sounds fancy. What a metal fucking year. Right? So she'd have three children with him, but one died in infancy. And that is relevant because her uh, her two surviving children do come up later. So just, you know, put that in the vault. So quick history lesson. During this time, the kingdoms of Croatia and Hungary were ruled by the House of Habsburg, which at the time was one of the most prominent royal houses in all of Europe. But not everyone was super jazzed about the Habsburgs being in power, particularly the Kuroks. So the Kuroks okay. were anti-Habs, a, an anti-Habsburg rebel group. So they were made up of like lower Hungarian nobility, hmm. Protestant peasants, serfs, and Slavs, like Slavic people. And so when I first read this, I was like, oh, what, what like ethnicity is Kurok? But that's like yeah. the title, like, oh, okay. you know, like that's what their their group is referred to as. So it's like this collection of people who are anti-Habsburg who are all getting together and they're the Kuroks. So Francis and Elaunas family were part of this whole conspiracy to overthrow the ruling Habsburg. So they were not pro, pro-Habs. They were like, nah. Yeah. So this conspiracy group was led by Francis and Elaunas Excuse me. It was led by Francis and Elona's father, Petar. So Francis okay. and Elona's father are running this. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, and they organized an armed rebellion of nobles. However, the authorities found out about the conspiracy and quashed the revolt and capture Petar Zarinsky. I'm, you know, I wonder if you say it Peter. Like, I bet that's how we would say it, but it's P-E-T-A-R and I'm trying to like. Petar. Petar, like Petar, I'm trying to do yeah. justice to the the origins and probably messing it up more. So when Francis found out about this, he surrendered and asked for mercy. So like Petar is arrested, he's screwed, and so Francis is like, okay, okay, my bad. While all other leaders of the rebellion were executed, which would include Alana's father, Francis was spared thanks to his mother paying a ransom of three hundred thousand fornits and a bunch of castles. She's like, here's a bunch of money. Also, I've got some extra castles laying around. You can have those if you just don't kill my son. Which is kind of fantastic. Right? Like, oh my God. Like, I just want some castles that I can be like, yeah, just, yeah. just like take Anyone these, whatever. Anyone have an extra castle that I could have? Right? I'll take it. So shortly after the birth of his and Elaunas third child, who was named Francis II, Francis I died. There can only be one. 
There can only be one Francis. So since this is the 1600s, women weren't like really guaranteed custody of their own children after the death of a spouse because like, what, women having rights? What? That's weird. Elona had to request custody of her two children, which was actually granted. And this was a big deal because not only did Elona get to keep her children, but she also maintained control over their Katsi estates. So like her husband's estates and his family estates, which included more than one castle because his mother had not given them all away, just some. And this included a Palinuk castle in Munkash, which will come up later. So this directly defied the wishes of Emperor Leopold I's advisors and Francis's will. And it makes sense that Emperor Leopold I wouldn't want the rebellious Francis's widow to control the familial lands because he was the monarch and the rebels were a direct threat to him and he was firmly on the Habsburg side of things. I'm not sure what Francis's deal was, but he's dead. So it's whatever. We're moving on. So Alona would remarry in 1682 to Amir Thokli. Imri? No, I'm going to call him Imri. That's fine. It could be Amir. Yeah, I'm going to say Amir. I'm going to say Amir because I like that name. Uh, so he was also decidedly anti-Habsburg. And I couldn't find a lot of information regarding Alona's participation in her first husband's rebellious activities, but she was definitely an active partner in her second husband's rebellious activities. Mm. I imagine she had to be pretty involved the first time around because her father and her husband were leading the rebellion. Right. Like she was definitely she like was, there. She was, she was doing stuff, but I just couldn't find a ton of information on her, like at what she actually did. So Amir was leading the Thuckily uprising. I'm sorry, what? Amir was leading the Thuckley. Okay, I thought it was Fuckley, the and fuckly. I'm like, that's what I was confused about. And I was like, that the is, Fuckley Uprising. That is what my uprising is going to be called, the Fuckley Uprising. Like, Fuckley, Fuckley Kindly. Fuckley Kindly. Yep, or Thank You Fuckley. That's it. That's it. But yeah, it's because it's his last name, and because he was the leader, it was named after him. So this lasted from like 1680 to 1685. Uh, the be- the be- battle, the Battle of Vienna, took place during this time on September twelfth, sixteen eighty three. And Amir's side was made up of Kurik rebels and Ottoman forces, because the Ottoman Empire is also a thing. Uh, but they were forced to retreat against the Habsburgs, who had teamed up with the Holy Roman Empire, which was also kind of a big fucking deal at the time. So. Their defeat allowed the Habsburgs to continue advancing, and as they did, one Rakotsi castle after another was lost, and Amir was captured. Aww. Yep. Finally, in 1685, only the Polonut castle in Munkash was left, and it was surrounded. Okay, I know this is a really serious moment, but first I thought it was the Fuxi thing, and then it sounded like you said, pull a nut. And I'm like, oh, my God. Pull a nut. I know, but. Like a cut. I'm just over here because it was foxy and then pull a nut. And I'm like. <laughs> I will say I am absolutely delighted because normally my linguistic butchery is just terrible pres- mispronunciation. But in this case, it's like accidental swearing. Right. Like, like accidental sailor speak. Super like nice and polite and yep. pronunciation nicely. And I'm over here like laughing my ass off the fucksy ups rising which lasted from 1682 <laughs> and then only the Polonut pul- castle <sighs> in mooncock was left and it was surrounded <laughs> this is terrible all right i'm sorry guys no no it's it's fine because honestly we need this this has been a week and we need this so elona and her two children were left in Polonut castle the enemy general kapara God, these fucking names. I can't. I wish I wish I could say this more smoothly. But he was like, surrender, bitch. We've got you surrounded. It's you and your kids. We're over this. But Alona agreed to disagree and used her remaining forces to help defend Polina Castle, which is now its name forever. I decree yeah, it. Yeah, 100%. We're renaming it. Alona wasn't just in the driver's seat. She was also an active participant in defending the castle. So she wasn't just like sitting back and being like, fight for me. 
die for me. Like she's she's doing the thing. Like on the throne, just like draped. Yes. Fight for me, man. Yeah. So our strategy is die for me. Just just do it. It's fine. So she and her 10-year-old son, Francis II, would be spied on the bastions, which are like these outcroppings on a castle's fortified walls, particularly for defense. Um, and so they're like shooting or like running weapons. And her daughter, Juliana, would care for the wounded. So like her and her two tiny children yeah. are like helping to run the show and actually participating in this defense. Oh, also, did I mention Alana was pregnant? Oh, gosh. So she's pregnant with small children. She's pregnant oh with small children defending this castle after enemy forces have taken literally every other estate from her. Like, this is it. That's so This is impressive. all she has. Her husband's been captured. Like, and she's like, no, nah, I'm not going to surrender. I don't feel like it. Unfortunately, the baby would die young. Which is not uncommon. I also imagine there is a lot of shit going on at this time. But yeah, she's pregnant. So despite being completely surrounded and overwhelmed by forces, Ilauna only lost 24 defenders while the enemy lost a ton more. Which is bonkers. After a month of this siege, General Kapara called it off and... Basically, his army vented their frustrations by robbing the town of Munkash as vengeance. Wow, that is terrible. Yeah, so they just like went and like destroyed Munkash. They're like, we're really mad because we couldn't get into this castle, so we're going to like rage quit all over this town. Super classy. And this may have been the end of the matter, but Polanut Castle had a great strategic implications and like could not be ignored. They couldn't just be like, fine, keep your stupid dumb castle with its unnecessarily sexually aggressive name fuck you yeah they're like no we want the castle with the unnecessarily sexually aggressive name it's ours so the following year general kapara returned with more than three thousand troops again he called for alauna to surrender and again she flipped him the double bird she's like nah bitch so general kapara laid siege to the castle for a whole ass year Wow. Not a half-ass year, a whole full-ass year. Both cheeks, handfuls, like, (laughs) that's how full-ass this was. And this was the only castle yet to be conquered. And obviously, this general was a completionist. He's like, we can't leave this single castle unconquered. Otherwise, I won't get my completionist badge. I won't be able to, like... Say I did all the mini quests. Right? Come on, guys. So finally, on January 15th, 1688, two years after the initial siege had begun, Elauna was forced to surrender. But she had some conditions. The defenders would receive amnesty, and the Rikatsi estates would remain in her children's names, and they could not be separated. So she's like, okay, I'm going to surrender, but here are my terms. I still get to keep a bunch of stuff and you don't get to be mad at us because we're awesome. Two days later, the enemy marched into the castle. Elauna, for her resistance, was sent to Vienna and committed to a monastery because that's just what you do with women you don't want to deal with. Right. And her children were taken away from her, which directly Ugh. defied the terms of the surrender. And they were sent away, but they were, like, they were sent to schools. So they weren't like... So they were not actually taking your children away from you. We're educating them. Yeah. Like, mm. I don't know. I'm like, okay, they weren't murdered, yeah, I guess. Yeah, like, it could be like, worse. Yeah, you're I, right. I, like, it's, it's an awful situation, but I'm like, I'm really surprised they didn't just slash everyone's throats. So I read that her daughter, Juliana, was raised in the convent of the Ursulines, where Ilauna was also sentenced, but that goes against the idea that they were separated, so I'm not sure how that worked. I'm not sure which information is correct or maybe it was referring like the kids can't be separated, but the kids were and the daughter stayed with mom. I don't know, but basically they're like, yeah, just like we don't want to deal with you. Francis II was sent to a school in Newhouse and Alona would be reunited with her husband who is 
shockingly not dead, has not been executed, in 1691 thanks to a prisoner exchange. But when the fighting was over in 1699, Elona and Amir found themselves on the losing side and were forced into exile. Oh. Yep. So they, they're captured and all this is going on while the co- the larger conflict is still happening. Yeah. But then kind of once we've determined the winners and losers, then they're like, okay, instead of putting you on the shelf to deal with you later, now get the actual yeah, fuck out. Away. Yeah. Elona lived most of her remaining life in Constantinople and then later Izmit, where she died on February 18th, 1703. She was buried in the church of St. Benoit in Galata. St. Benoit. Yep. So normally this is where we would end the story and the legacy would begin. But Alana's story is a very special case. Her ghost! No, I'm kidding. That's what I was saying. I'm like, did she come back from the dead? Yeah, she came back from the dead and just wasted everyone. It was amazing. So remember her 10-year-old son, Francis II, who mm-hmm. helped her defend the castle? He would become the Prince of Transylvania and start his own rebellion. And his... did he become the Prince of Transylvania? You know, I was trying to get more into it, but there's a lot of information about him, and I couldn't totally follow it because it's also helpful to have all this, like, conceptual information of like what was going on in, in this part of the world yeah. in the 16 and 1700s like, which there's too much i'm like i barely know what was going on in the united states like 1700s like what we were revolution right so that's the late 1700s it's fine but uh he started his own rebellion so like he took up his parents cause and his story is really interesting totally look into it it's cool and this became known as uh Rikautzi's war of independence Ultimately, ultimately, it failed, but Francis II Rakowski is still regarded as a Hungarian hero. Because he's like, independence! They can take our... What? They can take our lives, but they can't take our freedom! Is that is that Braveheart? Is I mean, that what he I says? Think so. I don't think I've ever seen Braveheart. I, I watched it once. It's really long. It's funny. It's funny because like the first act has a really climactic ending. And I was like, oh, that was a short movie. And my friend who I was watching it with is like, oh, it's not over. I didn't realize it had acts. Well, I I would describe it as the first act, you know, because it's like the whole beginning is leading up to this climax. Mm -hmm. But then it keeps going way beyond that. Mm. All right. So anyway, enough about Braveheart. Now to the legacy. Elona is regarded as a hero in Croatia and Hungary for fighting for their independence. She is also known as known, you know, for being the mother of Francis II, who is also a hero. So yeah. she's like heroes on heroes on heroes. In October of 1906, Elona's remains were reinterred with her sons in the St. Elizabeth Cathedral Aww. in Slovakia. So she was like chilling with her son. And for history stamp collectors, we got a two further is an Alauna stamp, which was issued by Hungary on September 28th, 1952. But yeah, that is the story of Countess Alauna Zarini, who refused to surrender. Fuck yeah. Who said, nah, bitch. <laughs> Not in my castle, bitches. Yep. So, Emily, what do you think before? Um, so, I am thankful oh shit I had something okay so I have a I started this part-time job at a hotel in town where basically I'm living my true life's purpose and giving people free beer and wine as a part of like a hospitality thing that they do and there's a family that's been staying there and there's a a lot of the guests are you know patients at the clinic because that's why people come here and I I like had a good rapport with them and we would chat and they were even like, Oh, I know someone who's like into history. Let me give you, or let me give them, you know, your name and the name of your podcasts and that kind of thing. And so yesterday was the last day that they were staying Mm -hmm. and they gave me a little plant as like, Oh, you know, as a thank you. I was like, I was not expecting this because I literally just stand here three nights a week and give people free booze. But like, you know, you chat people up, you get to know why they're there, you kind of get to know them and their preferences. And especially a lot of people like in that situation where you're there for the clinic, you just kind of need someone to talk to. But it, I definitely maintained all the professionalism in the world. I didn't almost cry. I didn't start freaking out. I was perfectly composed. But yeah, so that just 
all, I don't even know if they would ever listen to the podcast, but they know who they are and you are all amazing. And I'm happy you're getting to go home and I wish you nothing but the best. And thank you for my little plant. I named it Roz. Because yeah. <laughs> because the, the mom, I, I, I was able to like recognize her very mm-hmm. quickly when I started working because she, she looks like Roz from Frasier. Interesting. Like, and I, I mean, obviously looks are objective, but I mean that in like the most positive way possible because Roz is my favorite. So, mm. yeah. So I named the plant Roz. Kelly, yes. what are you thankful for? Um, Well, it's, I had a really good birthday, so I'm thankful for everyone that wished me happy birthday. And um, I'm especially thankful for my husband because it was just, it was funny because I had went and bought myself a cake. Not because he wasn't going to, but because <laughs> but I didn't- you know what you like. Well, and I didn't have one. And- I wanted to bring something in for work and I got lazy and I didn't feel like baking anything. So I went to the store like it was Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday night. And yeah, I was like, mm, what do I want? And then I saw something that just said strawberry flavored frosting. And I was like, well, that's kind of, and it, that, I was like, that's coming home with me. And my husband was like, oh, you know, I was going to buy you a cake, but you got one. It's fine. And I was like, what were you going to get me? And he's like, well, like triple chocolate. Or I asked him what he thought I got. And he's like, triple chocolate because I love, like I'm a chocolate 100%. And I'm like, actually, no. And he's like, well, that's weird. And he's like, I was going to get you this like chocolate mousse cake that Costco makes that's oh, delicious. Oh, I, I like, know what he's talking I about. Like, Dang it. And then yesterday I got home from work and he was gone. And I was like, well, that's weird, but whatever. And then he came home and he brought me the cake. Yes! He still went and bought it. And then some flowers and then a fake plant because I kill plants. And it was very cute. I love that. And I'm very just, I'm thankful for that, that he did that. It was very nice. That's very sweet. I like that. Also, do you have any of that chocolate cake left? I do. Okay, because I would, I I kind of forgot to eat today. I, I had some cheese and some nuts and some raisins or craisins or something. And I would, I would punch a bitch for some cake. And I'm glad I don't have to. Yeah, please don't. I don't want to be punched. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Please like us on Facebook, Instagram, at Whining About Herstory, <laughs> Instagram at WAHpod. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. No, whiningaboutherstory.com. Our email is <laughs> whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. You can figure it out. Where we'd love to hear from you and let us know, like, if you want us to cover specific women or anything like that. Yeah, and seriously, uh, make sure you're following us on social media. That's where we post merch sales. That's where we post giveaways. Go enter that giveaway right now. That's going to end at the beginning of April because I'm giving you guys extra time to get in there and get some sweet-ass merch. Yay. Also, raise five stars wherever you listen. It's Women's History Month. You're legally obligated to do so. Or, like positively rate any women-led podcast right now we're also going to be doing a live show for our patrons for our birthday just a month late so if you want to get in on that live show go join patreon for yeah as little as one dollar a month One well thank you so much for listening to another episode of whining about history i'm emily i'm kelly have an empowered day y'all bye, bye.